Thank you so much, Ben, for that that beautiful portrayal of Ezra and that place of in-between. And, and I'm really excited to be preaching today about Ezra and Nehemiah, which originally was one book and we split it into two in 1600. So I'm gonna refer to it as one book. I'm excited to be preaching about that those books and the prophet because, well, it's all about this space of being in the in-between, of, of, of things not being what they were and, and getting somewhere into the future, right? It's very apropos for our world right now. And, and I thought as a visual image, I would, I would preach in front of a, a torn down, falling apart barn someplace. And so Micaiah and I went for a drive out into the countryside and saw this barn and went and knocked on a lady's pet door and said, hey, so I got this weird request. So here we are. And if you happen to hear cows or something in the background, you'll know why. But I wanted this image behind me because, well, that's the state of Israel when this book opens. See, to give you a little background, the Babylonians had conquered northern Israel in about 722 BC and then finally destroyed uh, Judah and Jerusalem, tore down the temple and sent all the Jewish people from Judea into Babylon and, and displaced them all about 587 BC. And, and that was where the setting was when Brian was preaching on Jeremiah a couple weeks ago. And Jeremiah was saying, you know, the God says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope and a future, and on and on and on. What Jeremiah was saying is you are going to be dispersed. You're going to be taken to Babylon and then you'll be, come back someday. And Ezra and Nehemiah are the story of that coming back. There's a few things that are going on in the world that, that I think are really important. So over from 587 to it about 50 years or so. And in 538 BC, Cyrus the Great of the Persian Empire conquers Babylon and, and basically assumes control of all the land that, that Babylon had owned. And part of that was Judea, Jerusalem. And, and Cyrus, from a secular standpoint, was revolutionary as a leader. What he did is he, he decided, you know, instead of just conquering people and stealing them all, like the Babylonians had done, what he was going to do is he was going to let them have a certain level of, you know, religious freedom and choice, kind of let them run their own areas as long as they paid tributes and, and provided things to him and helped out and didn't rebel, he would kind of let them do their own thing. I mean, the empire was so big that Babylon had, hadn't been able to manage it all. And so he, he said, you know what, let's, let's just send all these religious people that had been taken captive home. And there was roughly about 500,000 Israelites living in Babylon at the time. And so Cyrus said, you know what, if you want to go back, you can build your temple and restore. In fact, I'll even help pay for it. And it wasn't just the Jewish people. It was lots of people groups. But, but Ezra opens up with this decree. And, and it says that, that uh, the leader at the time, Zerubbabel, was, was, went back to Israel with about 40, 42,000 Jewish peoples, about 10% of who was there. And they went back to start rebuilding the temple, reestablishing Israel as a people and as a nation. Now, I don't know if you've ever walked through a transformation process before, but it's, it's complicated and it's difficult. 
In fact, from a, a church perspective, it is often much, much easier to, uh, to plant a church and build something new than it is to bring transformation and restoration to something old. I mean, if we were going to restore this barn behind me, think how difficult and complicated it would be if you didn't just tear it down and start over. I mean, you could build a pole barn here in a week or two, but this would be a process. And there's, there's uh, a fitting analogy to that with what's going on with the Israelites. I mean, they had lost everything. God had stripped everything from them. He, in fact, he had even stripped the idea of them having a temple and God's house and God's presence being with them. And he'd sent them out into the world and they had nothing. And God wanted to transform and restore that. But it was going to be a process. And so as, as we looked at, you know, kind of how that change happens, it's interesting that, uh, that, that there's, there's a process to how things flow in our world, right? And, and it's well known in marketing, but it goes everything from the innovators that make up about 2.5% of the population to the early adopters who make up about 13.5% of the population to sort of the middle range, which makes up well, roughly 68% of the people. And then you have at the tail end what they call the laggards or at the very tail end, the saboteurs who are actively trying to tear apart any kind of change. And I would imagine that's what was happening with Ezra and the people. Then, you know, you see that, that 10%, the first chunk, the early adopters are like, okay, we'll go back. We'll start working. We'll start making things happen. And you have the other people that are behind. And, and this is setting up sort of a, a, a process for Israel being restored. Now, as Ezra lays out the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, he walks us through kind of what that process looks like. And I'm not usually the kind of person who just pulls out, you know, points of things. So this is how this works. But, but in this case, it really, really ties in. There's seven, seven keys that I want to pull out of this for what it means to bring about restoration and transformation. For, for how we are going to, um, well, move through all that's happening with COVID everything being torn down, torn apart, and then rebuilt on the other end. And the first thing that I want to point out is that restoration and transformation takes time. You know, you read through Ezra and Nehemiah and it takes you, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half maybe, depending on how fast you read. And, and it feels like it's just all one big flow. But what you miss is that really it's spread out over about 120 years. The process of the Israelites coming back and they start building the temple and, and then they get some opposition and they're ordered to stop. And then it's like 18 years later and they start building again and it takes them four years and they complete the temple finally. And then there's like 58 years that happened. And, and you know, in the meantime, you have Haggai and Zechariah that are, that are part, you know, prophets of the time. And then Esther comes in and she marries one of the Persian kings and, you know, that whole story. And then finally you get to Ezra coming like 58 years later later and he comes to bring the law and restoration to the actual rights and the, the, the process that the, the Israelites were going through, coming back and bringing their focus to God. And so, so you see that, that restoration begin to happen under Ezra. And then, you know, Ezra does this process for about 13 years or so. And, and then Nehemiah comes on the scene to help rebuild the walls and to, to, to establish Jerusalem as a city. And that he does really fast, in about 
52 days. Actually, it's a, a miracle. But but then he's there with the Israelites and they kind of start to fall away and he has to go back to Babylon and then he has to come back and bring restoration. The whole story takes 120 years. And I think sometimes when we think about processes of change, transformation, we think it happens like that, that God would just snap his fingers. And the truth is, we need to recognize that God has a much, much bigger timeline. God, God sees through the long haul. And I learned this really powerfully when I was in Maui. I thought, man, I'm giving my life to God. I'm going to go to Bible college. I'm going to serve him. He's got all these plans for me. I'm, going to, I'm just going to give my life to him. And, and what happened is I got about a year and a half into that, began to get disillusioned and frustrated with what was going on. And then God went silent. And, and really for about two, two and a half years, I, I didn't know where God was. And I couldn't reach him. And I remember crying out and, and trying to pray and then kind of getting indifferent and then sort of assuming that God had left and I was just kind of on my own. And I didn't understand why God wasn't just working. And then and I don't have time to get into the whole story, but after about two years, God met me one night in a powerful way and showed me that he'd been working on me and working in me and working through me for the whole time I thought he was gone. That part of that time was learning faithfulness to trust him, to know that even when he wasn't around, I was held in his hand and it was okay. God has a much bigger timeline for transformation. I mean, we think, oh, you know, he wants to bring back the Israelites, so he's going to do it. And they're going to build the temple and build the walls. and poof. But no, that's a 120-year process that roots a deep truth inside of them. Which, which brings us to the second point, that, that the biggest part of transformation and change, it's not about the end goal. It's about the community. It's about the people who are there and part of it. In fact, chapter two of Ezra starts off with him listing this long, you know, about a hundred groups of people that are going back to begin the restoration. And he actually lists out, you know, the, counts out 42,360 people. And he names these family groups, everything from Asmaveth's 42 people to, to Senanaha's people of, you know, about 3,630. And he lists all the animals and he lists all the gold. I mean, he even counts out 6,720 donkeys. <laughs> he begins by listing the people. And I think that's the most important thing we need to understand. The transformation is about the changing of the people, not the end accomplishment of a goal. When I was at my first church, Lebanon Free Methodist, they sort of sent us in there as a Hail Mary. Shanette and I were, were new pastors. We'd never pastored before. And, and it was an older church. The average age was about 65 or so. And there was about 65, 70 people. And they hadn't had a new person come to the church and stay in like five years or seven years when we came there. I mean, it was an actively dying church. 
And we were told, you know, we want you to go in there and bring new life and bring in new people and, and help the church transform and change. And, and I'm, I'm really proud to say that after seven years when we left, the church had transformed. It had a vibrant, uh, established young adult and kids ministries. And, and we had, you know, uh, different age groups and different energy and, and different people involved and different ministries going And just as proud was we really only lost a few people. Now, there were some. But even as we were changing the focus and the ideology of the church, what we didn't do is forget that it was about the people and the relationships. You know, as as we look into the future, I think Christianity in America in particular, but other places as well, it's going to have to transition. This, this whole process has, of COVID and just the way our world is moving and growing and, and things are changing and our perspective is broadening as humanity. Christianity is going to need to change and adapt. And things are going to be sacrificed. Things are going to have to change. But can we remember that it's about the people that are with us on the journey? It doesn't mean that everything that I care about has to be in order for me to be a loved and accepted part of it, or you. I mean, there will be things that you will care about that will probably change over the next year, five years, 20 years. But can we remember that it's about each other and about the people? Which gets us to the third point. Reformation and transition requires a cost. It costs something. For the people who were going back under Ezra and Nehemiah, the cost was, well, for the 10% that went, they left their whole lives and their comfort and they moved back out into the wilderness and were in danger of being overrun by the Samaritans who were there. They, you know, I mean, they had a huge cost. But it also says that all the people who were behind sent them. They gave money and and encouraged them and, and sent them out. In fact, even the secular kings did that. They sent them. They cost something. Or they, they paid something. It cost them. It, when we're in something together, when we believe in something, when we, when we are committed, we are willing to sacrifice for it. And in fact, I would say, in many ways, you can't actually love something until it costs you something. I mean, when you get married, right, you have to give up space. You have to give up time alone. You have to give up your opinion. You have to give up the way you clean or don't. You have to give up a lot. And you do because of love. That is the same thing for church. It's the same thing for helping people. It's the same thing for our world. When we love it, when we are, are bought in, it costs us something and we gladly pay it. Which doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, right? I mean, it's good to do that, but it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And in fact, the hardest part about transition, I think, is the fourth point, that you use the old foundation to build on, 
but it's a new thing that needs to be formed. In fact, in, the, in, in other words, the old thing has to change to become a new thing. And, and that requires a cost. You know, when you think about, well, my first church I was mentioning a bit ago, when we showed up there, one of the first things that happened is one of the old guys, he was in his late 70s, came up to me and took me, you know, came into my office and handed me a typewritten letter written in the 50s by a former pastor and said, I want you to read this and, and hold on to this. And it was about the Holy Spirit and gifts and, uh, and a whole bunch of things. And my first thought was, well, this was written on a typewriter. <laughs> but my second thought was, man, this is, there's truth in here. But this is a very different day. It's, it's a good thing to build on this truth. But, but we need to build something new. And it took him a while to come around to that, but he did. You see... It isn't about what the old foundations are. It's about what God is building off of them. And he always does that, right? I mean, he did that. He, he reinterpreted how things were understood. And in fact, that's what made Ezra so great. Ezra wasn't a prophet. He was a scribe that reinterpreted the Torah and the law and reintroduced it back to the Israelite people. What he did is he, he took this collection of writings and he said, look, you know what? This used to be all about Israel and about the temple and that's been destroyed. How do we apply that in our world today? How are things different? And he shifted this understanding of God from being located in one place to being located everywhere in the world. It, it, transformed the way we understand God and humanity. That was the beauty of what Ezra gave us. Jesus did the same thing. This is what the law says. This is what it means. Paul did the same thing. And ever since then, Christianity has evolved. And I wonder, what do we understand about faith in ourselves in this time where we're not meeting in our buildings? What are, we, what are we seeing of the foundations that have been laid of our, of our church and the meeting and gathering on Sunday mornings and, and all that? What, what on those foundations are we building? What new understanding is coming? And when this is over, man, I, I hope we get to go back. But it's going to be different. In fact, many of the churches, when we were allowed to start gathering, you know, outside, socially distanced, wearing masks, all that stuff, started to come back together and then realized, you know what, this, this is not what it was. And it was disappointing. And many of them have quit even trying to do that. Because they were trying to take the old foundation and just rebuild it. But we can't do that. We have to do something new. Which does bring me to my fifth point, though. It's okay to grieve for what was lost, even as you look forward to what's ahead. You see, we can't just look to the future and say, okay, we need to change, we need to change, we need to change. It's okay to say, man, I really liked that thing in the past. That meant something to me. That was important. That was good. And I'm sad that it's changing or that it went away or it got lost. 
In fact, we see in Ezra this exact thing happening. Ezra 3, 10 through 13 says, When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph holding cymbals, and they took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. And then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the first temple had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because... They were all shouting so loudly, and the sound was heard far away. And when it comes to transformation and change, there is a place to grieve, and there's also a place to celebrate. And when you love each other, when you're a a community together, you do both well. You know, when I'm doing premarital counseling with couples, Something I always tell them that shocks them because most of the time they don't think about it. But a wedding is a celebration for the couple and a time of grieving for the families. You see, you're forming a new relationship, which is beautiful and exciting, but you're also changing all the relationships with the other ones around you. And so the wedding in itself is a celebration, but it's also a time of sadness. And that's okay. Because that's what relationship is. Which does bring me to the sixth point. Because there's a grief, because there's a loss, there's always people who are opposed. People who resist, who drag their feet. People who say, I don't want to change, or that shouldn't be different, or we need to go back to how it was. There's always those who stand in the way. And you know, and you see it through Ezra and Nehemiah where it's the Samaritans, the people who were formerly Israelites that when you know, northern Israel was destroyed in 722 BC, they moved down over the 120, 160 years or so uh, while you know, Jerusalem was empty. And they got displaced. And they, they were opposed. They were, they were actively threatening. And the Israelites had to defend themselves and keep going. They had to keep moving forward. Not not compromising, not selling out, just being faithful to what God called them to. There are those who will always oppose good change. But it's okay to just keep on going. Because, and this is the seventh point and the final one, God's perspective is always bigger and different than ours. Like, you know, all this stuff that was going on, the political turmoil of the age and, you know, the, the Persian Empire changing the way they did things. And, you know, if, they, if you had asked anybody of the day, does Judah matter? The only reason anybody cared about Judah is it happened to sit right in between Egypt and the Persian Empire. And so it was a strategical place to defend from. Nobody cared about them. They were, they were relatively irrelevant at this point in time. But for God, they were his people that he was bringing his message and his hope to. 
They were, they were helping the world see that God was not located in a temple or one location, but that God was everywhere. And, and, and from his perspective, this irrelevant people deeply, deeply mattered. God, God doesn't look at our political systems and the way we do things and, and go, oh, that's really important. Now, he might use the systems of the day. He used the Persian Empire with their big armies and their you know, policies and all that. He used them to bring his people home and to restore them and to fulfill his promise. But it wasn't about them. It was about God's perspective. It was about sharing who he was with the world, helping them understand him bigger and different. And, and that is, that is the, the, the way we need to understand our world. It breaks my heart right now that there are so many people that are starting to hate each other over politics or over wearing masks or policies about the COVID stuff. Like, I totally get that we disagree and we have different opinions. But when those, when those opinions become more important than each other's humanity, it's really sad. I'm on a re-elect Trump 2020 Facebook group. And before you get any ideas, I'm also on a liberal Biden one too. It's, it's information seeking and that is not tipping my hat into any of my politics. And somebody posted the other day a picture of a truck that had been painted with it looked like blood spatter on the front. And they said, you know, something about, you know, our new protest vehicle. And I just remember thinking, those are humans. Like, how do we get to that place where what we believe in our opinions or our politics are more important than the humanity of the other? And can I be really blunt here? If we get to that place, we get civil war. That is what happened in 1860s. It became more important to defend our rights and our choices than to defend the humanity of each other. Yes, politics in our world matters. Yes, policies matter. Absolutely. But if we lose God's perspective and make them the most important, we destroy each other. Which goes back to this whole thing Transformation requires commitment, community, and love. This time is crazy. It's stressful and it's painful. But I want you to know that we will get through this, that this will hardly even be a speed bump in human history, that, that we can love each other through this. We will survive. It'll be okay. And we have opportunity out of it to do something beautiful and amazing with our faith and our world. For those that are part of my church, thank you. I love you. I'm proud to be serving God alongside of you. Let's continue to see how God wants to bring transformation and restoration. As we close in this song, the next song, 
I love the image of all the people from different places coming together to sing and worship. Because that's, that's what we should be about. Let me pray. God, thank you so much that your perspective is bigger than ours. That you carry us through, that when things cost, when things are difficult, when things are hard, you walk with us. You call us to love and relationship and connection and community and sacrifice for each other. So may you lead us. May you guide us. May you do something beautiful and new. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.